All right, and I invite you to turn, if you're staying in the auditorium, uh, to Romans chapter 7 this morning. Romans chapter 7. It's been a few weeks since I've been able to preach. I think the last time I preached with you, it was outside and it's hot and sweaty. Uh, but looking forward to getting back in Romans chapter 7. Heard great things about last week's service and uh, what God did among us, and so thankful for that. We'll be looking at Romans chapter 7 in the middle of the chapter today and uh, considering this uh, together. When we start into the middle of Romans 7, starting with verse 7, uh, we come to a text where Paul, the apostle, challenges Gentile believers not to think that God's law is bad. Uh, Paul knew that sometimes when people fail to obey God's rules, they actually blame God for his unreasonable expectations. As a civilization, I think we're really good at blame shifting. I took note of a few things I've uh, heard the last few weeks. Uh, So we blame tobacco companies for giving us cancer. We blame fast food companies for making us overweight. It's all their fault. We blame our brother or sister for turning us in to the parents. It's not what I did, it's what they did. We blame SUVs for killing bystanders in parades. We blame guns for taking lives. We blame police officers for setting up speed traps. That's what we call them. Actually, they're enforcing posted speed limits. Uh, That's what they're doing. You see, we're good at blaming others. And sometimes it doesn't stop with just blaming an object or another person. Sometimes we go right to the top. And we blame God for the difficulties or challenges that we're facing. Sometimes people blame God for expecting us to be perfect. Or giving us all these rules to obey. And so in our sermon this morning, we are going to consider what Paul says about the law of Moses and our sin nature. And the point of the text is that we must never blame God or his rules as the problem. Instead, we're going to learn and begin to learn today, the problem comes from our own inner corruption. I'm going to take a moment and read with you uh, Romans 7, 7 through 25 to show you how rich and deep this passage is. When we read it, uh, we're going to read it out loud together. Uh, Don't lose heart. I cannot cover the whole thing uh, today. I'm going to cover this in two, maybe three sermons. You know how that goes. I've got like two right now I'm committing to, and then it's going to become three. Uh, or four, but hopefully two <coughs> sermons. Let me invite you to read with me Romans 7, verses 7 through 25. You can read it silently there as I read it out loud. Paul says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, 
produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I once, or I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So, the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I I do not do the good I want. But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Amen. You see why we're going to take a few weeks to work through this together. Many preachers, when they get to this point in Romans, they throw up their hands metaphorically and they quit going verse by verse, phrase by phrase. Look at the details of the text. It's actually, I listened to some sermons on Romans 7 this week. I don't often listen to other sermons, uh, but uh, I was kind of disappointed um, with some uh, of the sermon. Well, most of the sermons because they became thematic at this point and didn't look at the text in close detail. And I can understand the impulse. <laughs> Believe me, I thought about that uh, up until about five minutes before coming up behind you. Uh, uh, most sermons given on this text will take the majority of the sermon to talk about who is the I. Who's Paul talking about? Is he talking about himself when he was a believer or unbeliever? And they get into that and then After discussing that for the whole sermon, they'll make some applications at the end. Uh, But what I want to do is trust God through the Spirit to help us work through this biblical text and ask him to use it to change us. And so what we're going to look at today is very simple. We're going to look at Romans 7, 7 through 12. 
just that first part together. And we're going to try to understand it uh, in a little bit more detail. Okay, so if you've got questions that come after that, ask your adult Bible study teacher. Uh, and they'll answer it for you, okay? Or come back, come back in following weeks and we'll try to work through it if I have answers uh, to some of those questions. Now, in our passage, uh, Paul continues to answer objections uh, in this part of Romans, and he's been doing this for some time. It all started in Romans 6 and verse 1. You remember, he asked the question, what shall we say then? And that's a marker for when Paul is raising objections or accusations that people might make against his grace theology. So in chapter 6, verse 1, he says, what shall we say then? That marks out one section. He does it again in uh, 6.15, what then? Very similar question. And you'll notice in 7, in verse 7, he gives the same phrase, what then shall we say? Okay, so these are three sections. One goes from Romans 6, 1 to 14, 6, 15 to 7, 6, 7, 7 through the end of chapter 7. Three sections where Paul answers questions about sin, grace, and the law. Um, now, in each one of these cases, after that first question, he asks another question. So they're following the same form. So in 6, 1, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In 6.15, are we to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? And then in our text, the one we'll look at today is, um, is the law sin? Is the law sin? You know, what, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? And so he follows similar formats. And you'll notice that after each one of these questions, the second question, he always answers it the same way. What's his answer? If you know his answer, say it out loud. Okay, yeah, okay, perfect. (laughs) Different translations of scripture out there. God forbid. May it never be. Okay, his answer to all those questions is no way. No way. You've totally misunderstood what I want to say. Now, I want to point out one more thing to you. In Romans 7, verse 7 through the end, he actually answers two questions about the law. Okay, so in 7-7, he says, what then shall we say that the law was sin? By no means. Then look at verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. So he uses that same answer. So there are really two big sections here at the end of Romans 7, and we're only going to deal with the first one today. And so... uh, as we look through this, he's going to deal with this question, is the law sin? And he will, he will uh, start simply with this question. He'll answer it quickly and then uh, give a, a, a lengthier um, argument about it. So uh, we'll work through the text. It's pretty simple. It all starts with um, the questions at the beginning of verse 7. So look there again. What then shall we say? That the law is sin. How could someone suggest that Paul, they're making accusation, Paul, are you saying the law is sinful? Now again, if you've been here in our series, you know what law we're talking about. This is the law of Moses. Okay, Paul, are you saying that the law that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai 
is sinful? Is that the point of what you're saying? How could they come to those conclusions? Well, you know what? Paul has had some fairly negative things to say about the law in Romans so far. I'll read you a few of them. Romans 3.20. No one is justified by works of the law. Romans 3.28. One is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Romans 4 verse 13 says, For the promise of Abraham, or to Abraham and his offspring, that that he would be heirs of the world, did not come through the law. So Abraham and his descendants got a promise, and it had nothing to do with the law of Moses. Verse 15 of chapter 4, he says, For the law brings wrath. Does that sound positive? I want more wrath. How do I get it? Give me more law. For the law brings wrath. Romans 5 verse 20 says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass. Like if you're actually listening, when paying attention when you read, like, okay, so the law of Moses came in, and one of the reasons it came in was to increase trespasses. Maybe it shouldn't have come in. Right? Am I just the only one who thinks this way? Romans 6.14, he says, You are not under the law, but you're under grace. Romans 7, verse 4, likewise, my brothers, you have died to the law. Listen to this one. You could actually even look. Verse 5, Romans 7, 5. He says there in that verse, in a section, he says, Are sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death? The law aroused our sinful passions. And then verse 6, we are released from the law. Paul seems to have some negative things to say about the law, doesn't he, in Romans. So how could someone come to the question, is the law sin? Well, it might be something they would accuse him of saying. And, and some people, especially Jewish readers, would have a serious problem with what Paul's been saying so far. I mean, the rest of Scripture is not as negative about the law as what Paul is here in this text. I thought, for instance, of certain of the Psalms. And I just want to rehearse a few of the very familiar Psalms with you and what the psalmist said about it. Psalm 1, David speaking, I think, in the very beginning. He says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the what? The law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Psalm 19, verses 9 through 17, David again, who, David is a man after God's own heart. He's being led by the Spirit to give us this. Perhaps he knows God's perspective on the law, right? Verse 9, Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. Enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. Even much find gold. Sweeter also than honey. 
and the drippings of a honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, what? Keeping the commandments, there is great reward. One other place, Psalm 119. 119, verse 97. The psalmist says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation day and night. Your commandment makes me wiser than mine enemies. Your testimonies are my meditation. So we could almost hear Paul's accusers say, You made the law out to be sin. How dare you? This is God's holy law we're talking about. And so Paul will answer that accusation. And his answer to it's the law sin is that abrupt answer that he gives over and over again. May it never be. No way. The law is not sinful. Right? And to encourage you, we're moving on to number three. Like, wow, if we keep going at that pace, we might get lunch today. Right? <laughs> to this answer in the last part of verse 7 and through the end of verse 11, Paul takes things farther by presenting two corrections to the question or the accusation that's been waged. That's uh, verses 7 C or D through verse 11. This is what is between Paul's initial and closing answer. He uses a device called an inclusio. He says, if you're going to ask me, is the law sin? He's going to say, no way, at the beginning. He's going to say it negatively. In no way is that true. And at the end, verse 12, he's going to say, so the law is holy. The commandment holy, righteous, and just. So he's going to give this like clear answer to the question at the top and the bottom. And in between it is an argument that he makes, where he offers, I think, two corrections about, you know, instead of viewing the law as sin, you need to view the law in a different way. And um, I I think that's what starts here in the end of verse 7. So uh, it starts with uh, the first correction, and I don't have a slide for these, but underneath this you've got like a letter A and a letter B. Um, Letter A is instead... The law being sinful. The law helped me to understand sin. Okay, that's what the end of verse 7 and verse 8 are about. Actually, he says, the law helped me to understand sin. Look at verse uh, 7, near the middle to end. He says, yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. Right, so uh, his point here will be that the law is not sin, but it helped Paul understand more about sin. Now Paul does not say before he had the law he did not sin, doesn't say that. He said before he was made aware of the law of Moses, it says that he did not know sin or properly understand it. And, 
And to uh, make this clear, he uses two different words for knowledge. It looks like the same word in your English Bible in most cases, but two different words to just show that um, he uh, did not have a comprehensive understanding of sin until he was exposed to the law of Moses. And when he uh, came to know the law of Moses and God's rules and expectations laid out there, he came to know sin. Now, in what sense did he come to know sin? Well... I would suggest that he, he came to know sin in that it became clearer to him what sin was. And uh, perhaps he also uh, will allude to the fact that it also sin became more alluring to him in some way or another because of sin abusing the law. Now some might object here, this point in the passage, if you're paying attention to what Paul's saying, and say, why would I want to know sin? Like, you know, I'm just thinking, you know, I'm, I'm hearing all this stuff from Paul about the law, and maybe I'm just thinking we'd be better off without it. Why would I want to know sin, Paul? How is that a good thing? If when the law came in, trespasses it only increased, how's the law good? Well, for one thing, uh, that's the only way Paul's argument works here. That the law showing a sin is a good thing. Okay, that's what he believes. Uh, Paul says that the law is not sin, but on the contrary, it helps us know sin. But again, how is that good? Why would we want to come to know our sin? Uh, And at this point, I want to give you an illustration I think might help. Okay, so if you're following with me and you're wrestling with like, okay, so the law came and it helped Paul know more about his sinfulness. Why would I want to know that? Uh, The illustration I use is just from our physical health. Well, let's, let's suppose that a doctor came to you and he said, there are two things true about you right now. There are two, thing, two things true, one good, one bad. The bad is you have a terminal disease. Uh, or, you know, perhaps uh, you, you, you just become aware of this. You have a terminal disease in some uh, way or another. And if left unchecked, this disease will certainly kill you. But the good thing is, is there's a cure. And the really good news is this cure works every single time. Well, uh, one of the things to be treated for this disease is you have to know that you have it. In such a case, we would all say that it's a good thing for you to learn that you have the disease. You might not feel good initially, but it's a good thing to know that you have the terminal disease. Some of us like to live in blessed ignorance. I know. Like, I don't want to know what's, what my problem is. But in this case, you know, you, you can live in blessed ignorance. But in, in that imagined scenario I just gave you, it, it will kill you. Now, Paul is talking here about something far more serious than your physical health. He's talking about your spiritual and eternal condition. The law was good for Paul because it showed him his own sin. Which, of course, would reveal his need for righteousness outside of himself. Okay, so that's how the law is good. Sure, it does all this stuff, but one of the things it does, it exposes you. And it shows the sins of your heart. But how, how does the law help me know my sin? 
Well, the law comes in and shows us all about our inherent sinful desires. You see, Paul says that he did not really know about all of his sin problems until the law came in as an external authority and said things like this to him. You know you really shouldn't desire your neighbor's house like that. You know you shouldn't meditate and foster on those longings for your neighbor's wife like that. Stop it. God doesn't want you to do that. And for Paul, that was something that he hadn't known before. What? I can't even think about those things internally? I can't focus on these things and long to have them internally? To state his point more explicitly, Paul appeals to one of the Ten Commandments in this passage. Did you see that? When Paul became aware of the Tenth Commandment that said, Thou shalt not covet... It stirred intense desires within him. Now, at this point, I think it's, it's good to answer a few questions about thou shalt not covet. Uh, we've got them listed in your notes. If you've got a handout, and you can uh, find them there. The first question we'll, we'll deal with is what is covetousness? Well, to understand that, we go back to Paul's source. When he says thou shalt not covet, he's quoting the Ten Commandments found in Exodus, part of the law of Moses. He's quoting in particular Exodus 20 and verse 17. I'm going to read it for you just to help us understand a little bit more of what coveting is. It's a word maybe in English we don't use as much anymore, but I think the the biblical text will help us here. God said to Moses, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Or his male servant, or female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. So what is covetousness? In its original setting, it involved desiring for yourself what belonged to your neighbor. Starts with his house, then goes to his wife. And this longing, this desire for your wife might be akin to what we might call lust uh, today. This Word for desire, by the way, is the word epithumia, which is typically translated desire or lust. You shall not covet, you shall not strongly desire these things. But the strong desire or passion extends to any of the possessions of your neighbor's house, his animals. So covetousness in its original setting is the strong desire, passion, or lust for what someone else has. That's covetousness. Second question I want to consider, and there's another place in your notes, is why did Paul use that sin as an example? And of course, this is where, you know, you could hear a lot of preaching, a lot of speculation. The question might be impossible to answer, but, but I think it is likely that he does so because this commandment forbids uh, sins of the inner being or of the heart. In other places, I think Paul describes uh, how how others would perceive his righteousness before his conversion when he was a Pharisee. They would, of course, think that according to the uh, external expectations of the law, he was blameless, right? This is how Paul, even before his conversion, would have answered that question. But now, later, as a believer, he looks back, right, at his life. 
And uh, he examines these things and he talks about what that commandment covetousness did to him internally. When he, when he learned, I cannot covet and how that impacted him. I think this commandment in particular revealed something to Paul himself. It revealed the sins that were under the surface in his heart. If Paul would have used the eighth commandment, for instance, thou shalt not steal, he may have passed. I didn't take my neighbor's donkey. I didn't take my neighbor's house. I didn't take his wife. But the tenth commandment, thou shalt not desire those things, gives more internal. Gives more internal. Thou shalt not covet. And then he says back in our text, sin, seizing the opportunity, produced in Paul all kinds of covetousness when he was made aware of the command, thou shalt not covet. At this point, and to be clear, this is my personal opinion. You can write it down and see if you agree When Paul starts talking about sin at this point, into the end of verse 8 and so on, I think he's talking about his own sin nature. Other ways you could describe it as his fallenness that he had within himself, that his depravity. He's talking about his own sin nature when he talks about sin. So when he was told he could not desire what others had, his indwelling sin nature produced Illicit desires of all shapes and sizes, flooding his mind, polluting his heart. You see, there was something deeper, kind of like a layer deeper than covetousness in Paul. Yes, I got this command, it's all about covetousness, and what I begin to realize is there's something underneath it. And that's what I'm going to call a sin nature. There's a sin nature that's, that's working and using even God's holy law to produce this covetousness in me, all kinds of lawlessness. The problem was not the law. The law helped him understand his sin. The problem was his sin nature, his own inner corruption. Now, the way that Paul responded to this rule of God and God's rules is not unique to him, is it? I just look around, right? course look at other people not ourselves when some people are made of rules their impulse is to rebel externally sadly i think we have many examples of that in our own culture today i won't illustrate it from culture i'll get you to stay aware they say these rules are meant to be broken and that's just what i'm going to do that's how some people will respond to the rules of god others however when made aware of the rules they won't rebel externally Their corruption is more internal. When they hear God's rules, they struggle with anger or internal defiance. Who's he? Who's he to tell me what to do? Or they struggle with arrogance or covetousness or lust. And so Paul starts with this first correction. Instead of the law being sinful, it helped me See my sin. 
He's got one more, and that's verses 9 through 11. And I'm going to have to go quickly through this. Um, Instead of the law being sinful, his second correction is sin deceived me and used the law to kill me. Verses 9 through 11. Look at verse 9. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life, I think that is, those are the Ten Commandments. The commandments found in the law of Moses had blessings attached to them and promised life if you will keep them. Those very commandments that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity, that sin nature takes the opportunity to use that law to deceive me and through it, kill me. So again, what he says here is really simple. Paul's sin nature not only produced all kinds of lusts and covetousness in heart, it also deceived him about it. He'd be telling him, you're okay. Just internal. It's no big deal. Not only deceived him, does it stop there? He says this, this uh, sin used the law to kill him. I think that means that uh, sin led him further and further into his own spiritual death, his sin nature, with no hope of righteousness in himself. But the main point, again, is that uh, our problem is not the law, it's sin. Uh, I'd say it this way, sin is like, or uh, sin co- co-ops or hijacks the law and uses it to kill us. Sin is like a, a venomous parasite which leeches onto the law. So that when we take the law and we think it's good, it is, it's good, it's holy, it's righteous, but attached to it and clinging to it is sin, and its poison kills us. It's like the uh, illustration of a Trojan horse. You've got the good thing, but there's a sin with it. That leads to his final conclusion, verse 12. So the law is holy, The commandment is holy and righteous and good. In case the reader is still not clear, this accusation that comes, you you said the law is sinful, Paul. He says, actually, it's not. The law is not sin. The law is holy, meaning separate, high, lofty, like God, its source. Right? The law is not sinful. It's the opposite. It's holy. And it's righteous. It's always right and just. We read that in the Psalms. Law of God is right and just, and it's good. The only other time Paul uses the words righteous and good together, we're a little earlier in Romans. I don't know if you remember this. He says, you know, some of us would dare to die for a righteous man. But then he talks about dying for a good man. And he makes a little bit of a distinction there between the two. Righteous being, you know, right and obeying the rules and meeting the standard, but good being, you know, filled with a sense of goodness. And that's his point about the law here. It's filled with goodness. might be what the psalmist says when he says it tastes sweet like the honeycomb. The commandment is holy, righteous, and good. It comes from God, is perfect in every way, and accomplishes all of his purposes. So, sorry, number four conclusion. That's what I just talked about. Okay. So, 
In conclusion, don't blame God. Your problem is your sin nature. Understand the scan that's been performed by the Bible today. The problem is internal. It's within. And it's terminal. The problem's your own heart. It's filled with sin. And run to the cure today. There's only one cure, but it works every single time. (laughs) Every single time. Run to the cure. The cure is Jesus. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And he was raised by the Holy Spirit three days later. So that if you would believe in him today, that terminal issue that you have called a sin nature that produces all kinds of different sins, it can be overcome. And God can give you a righteousness that is not your own. If you're here today and you've never believed in the name of Jesus Christ to save you from your sins, you'll never be able to keep all of God's laws. You can't do it in yourself. Think even about the internal ones. You can't. Run to Jesus. He can save and deliver you. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ today, and as I was poking around with some of these sins, you were convicted about this week. Some of your own strong desires for forbidden things. Run to Jesus. He's the cure every time. His blood covers all of your sins. Rejoice in him today. Confess your sin, but rejoice in him and ask him for strength to serve him.